Welcome to My Third Kidney. I'm Nat Rembach. For this episode, I interviewed the illustrious Mike Montague. Mike Montague is a fellow podcaster, speaker, writer, game show host, and the bearer of a rare genetic feature causing hyperoxaluria, which is the presence of high levels of oxalate in the blood. In this episode, we'll learn how Mike came to discover his rare genetic feature and how that has changed his life for the better. But first, a one-minute disclaimer from our lawyers. This podcast involves medical issues. The content of this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any medical condition. The content of this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. Do not take any actions regarding your health without the advice of your treating physician. The makers of this podcast and their invited guests make no claims as to the efficacy or reliability of the treatments mentioned. The makers of this podcast and their invited guests assume no responsibility for the accuracy of the information contained herein. The makers of this podcast and their invited guests strongly encourage listeners to gather information from all reputable sources, to share their understanding with their treating physician, and to consult with their treating physician regarding their own treatment plan. Now that that's all out of the way, let's jump in. Thanks for having me on. I haven't gotten a chance to talk about the the diagnosis or my my kidney issue with too many people, but I would love to to talk about it because it kind of caused me a midlife crisis where I went to um, a kidney specialist because I had a stone. I, I had three stones in, in a row, a couple of years apart. The third one, they did a urinalysis and found out that I had this super rare condition. It's about one in a million the type of variant that I have, usually it's a genetic disease. So it shows up in children. The type that shows up in adults is even more rare than that. So maybe like one out of 10 of those or so. So there's maybe 30 people in the United States that have ever experienced what I experienced. And my first urologist Googled the condition in front of me in the room to figure out what it was when he was looking at my urinalysis report. And that kind of blew my mind then. and, and, And then he said immediately, don't Google this because if you Google it, you're going to see that condition that happens in children and almost all of them die from it. Of course, I immediately went home and Googled it, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I was like, what in the world? And it really kind of, I had one of those moments where you're like, I, at 39 years old, I figured out, you know, probably what would kill me, right? So that's kind of like a, an eye-opening experience. You're like, not immediately, but eventually it's going to cause enough damage to my kidneys. The, the, that's probably what would get me if uh, there's no freak accidents or anything, which is a weird, also kind of weird thought. I can't imagine what sort of a, a wake-up call this was. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess we could start with the the first kidney stone. I was probably 27. I was really young and I was DJing and and doing poor lifestyle choices at that point. So drinking a lot of Diet Mountain Dew to stay up for overnight radio shows and and late night DJing in bars and clubs and taking a lot of Advil and other things that are not great for your livers and, and kidney. And I think it was really just dehydration that caused the first kidney stone. And the doctors kind of acted like these happened to everybody. 
no big deal. It, it stinks, but you're not going to die from it. And it's not nothing there. So I didn't really change anything. I think I switched from like Mountain Dew to tea or something and just kept living my life. And it, I felt like I was going to die. So I was really worried. Like anybody that's had a kidney stone, some most, I'm sure most people listening to this have, I felt like my, I was going to die. It's like getting like punched in the stomach, feeling nauseous, being constipated and getting hit in the groin all at the same time. Like just everything in my torso was clenched up and, and, uh, in like a, a knot of a cramp. My roommate at the time was an EMT. It was an ambulance driver. <laughs> so I knew he was going to be home from work in like an hour and a half. And I was trying to like just muscle through it and be like, this is going to be so annoying if I have to call an ambulance when my, my roommate's an, <laughs> an EMT. So I tried to walk around the block. I tried everything and I, I couldn't make it. So uh, his girlfriend, uh, a kindergarten teacher, drove me to the hospital instead. But by the time I got there, it had passed through my bladder and everything was fine. And so it was kind of like a weird traumatic experience. It was, it wasn't right, but by the next day I was completely fine. I think most guys worry about peeing it out, but, but that didn't bother me at all. It was kind of a, just a a weird non-event. I think all of that was just a strange experience where I I felt like I was going to die and something was seriously wrong, but then they're like, no, nothing's wrong at all. And then my other stones were all kind of different too. They progressively got worse. So I had one on vacation from a roller coaster. It kept moving slowly. So I would be sick and feel like I was dying for an hour and then I'd be completely fine. And then I'd eat or drink something and I'd be sick for an hour. And this lasted for like two weeks until it passed. And then I got that one analyzed and stuff and they still didn't know what was wrong. They kind of just said it was probably already there from the last time you had it and it just broke off now. So, so no worries there, but a miserable plane flight back from Los Angeles to Kansas City where it was just a disaster. Uh, I think the flight attendants and everybody thought I was going to die until I like passed out from the pain uh, <laughs> eventually. And my wife was was freaked out. And then finally, the third one got stuck and they had to do surgery and go up there and and get it. So that's when they finally did all the tests and figured out that I had this disease. Uh, they were all completely different random stories. And it's a genetic disease, like I said. So I've had this my whole life and, and nobody's ever thought to test for it or or to do anything because it's so rare, I'm I'm assuming. And then immediately when I did a urinalysis, which you think would you should probably do whenever anybody has a kidney stone. It's not a big deal. It's an easy test for them. It's cheap and and stuff to do. It immediately came back. The oxalate levels are what causes kidney stones or I have calcium oxalate stones. So calcium you need in your body, but the oxalate is about 10 times higher than any other human that you would test. So a lot of them happen when you have surgeries or other things that you screw up stuff that creates it or, or dissolves oxalate. So people that have had bowels removed or other things can have that symptom, but mine is just natural. Anything I do, even avoiding foods that have high oxalates like spinach and kale and stuff, really don't even get mine down to normal levels. There, there's not anything that I can can do about it. So I just have to drink drink a lot of water and and hope for the best, but it is something that they could have easily tested at any time and it would have shown up and and confirmed the diagnosis. Would the test be for oxalate levels? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that's a routine test. Yep. Just in the, in a urinalysis, you collect your urine for 24 hours and mail it off to people and then they, 
<laughs> they mail back the report to your doctor, which is always good fun. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I was aware of creatinine tests for kidney function. For your condition, creatinine levels are fine and the oxalate levels are high and that's what causes the kidney stones. Right. Yeah. So anytime I get dehydrated or I have too much oxalate and calcium in my, my kidney at the same time, it'll start creating stones. So that's a very different issue than most people have. That is, that is very unique. And then what causes major issues is if it's not treated or you always are, are dehydrated or you don't pay attention, it can actually create kidney stones in other parts of the body. So these stones can form in other organs, which cause uh, major damage. And so that's when, when children have this really bad when they're born with it, that's what, what causes uh, morbidity issues. Is the treatment the same to make sure that they stay hydrated? I think so. Yeah. I haven't heard of any other, any other treatments there. There's no medications or any other uh, ways to fix it that I know of. And it's just incredible that you, you could have children dying from that when the remediation is to drink more water. Right. So that, that was also a, a funny kind of thing for me is when I finally got the diagnosis, I was like, okay, it's nice to be confirmed that you're a freak of nature that are, you know, really are different than everybody else. But if you have like a, a severe genetic disease and they say the treatment is just drink more water, you're like, okay, uh, I can do that. And it's been about several years now. So I've, I've been going for regular checkups and I don't have any stones forming and everything's been been fine since that that third event. But I, I check the the levels every year and, and drink a bunch of water. But I yeah, gave up caffeine and drink water as my beverage of choice, occasionally a juice or something. And I, I seem to be good to go. That's a really nice treatment. That yeah. fares a heck of a lot better than most most other kidney patients. Yeah, so I'll take that for sure. I definitely feel lucky about that. But uh, I do still, I think, struggle from the psychology part that you were mentioning of just having the, uh, the authorities not really know any better, right? Uh, I mean, that's kind of like when your IT person says, uh, I don't know, unplug it and plug it back in again. <laughs> and so that's kind of what the doctors are. They're like, yeah, I don't know. I would drink a lot of water and lose some weight, but I, I don't really, you know, have any, uh, you know, eat healthier. <laughs> uh, but we don't really have any other better ideas for you than that. The, it, it causes interesting uh, psychological stuff for sure. Mike, I would love for you to explain when the first inklings of evidence came forth that you had a very special illness. Wow. Um, I would say I was completely blindsided by that. I think my first kidney stone when I was young was probably an inkling. I had never really known anybody that had a kidney stone. I didn't know anything about it. So at 27, I had my, my first kidney stone, and that was probably a sign that I was doing some poor lifestyle choices in my 20s. So I was drinking a lot of Diet Mountain Dew. I was not particularly in shape or exercising or worrying about what I was eating at all. 
And I, up to that point, you know, I had been a, a healthy human who was, who was invincible, right? You're kind of like in that, still in that teenage stage. So I had some athlete injuries and stuff, but nothing to worry about. So that was kind of the first moment where I realized, Ooh, something's not right. And I need to do something about it, but I had no idea how they worked. So even after that one passed, I was like, Oh, that was a crappy four hours, but I was fine the next day. And I kind of bounced back. And I didn't know at the time that there were other kidney stones forming or already formed that were going to break off later (laughs) and cause me problems. The second one was even worse. And then the third one ended me up in the hospital And that's when I got the diagnosis, which was, oh, this is a lifelong issue. This is something serious. So when I I went in to see the results of my my tests after the the third one, I was really kind of expecting like, hey, there's no more stones. You passed it. We we did all these tests. You're healthy because you've always been healthy and and you continue, you know living life as it was, but that wasn't the case. (laughs) So I got a little blindsided and and shook up on that. What's your prognosis? Can you completely lose your kidney function? Yes. So it is basically a point where you can overwork and and cause damage long-term. But from what I understand, the biggest challenge are the kidney stones that they can cause a lot of damage. Having surgeries to go get them or causing complete blockages of the ureter or other things would be so painful and cause a lot of other side effects before you get there. It can also become so bad that it causes kidney stones in places other than your kidney, which causes a lot of damage. And I didn't really even want to look into that. My goal is to avoid that completely. So I didn't look too hard. A kidney stone and a joint or another organ that that doesn't clear out of your body can cause a lot of issues like other cysts and and cancers and things. So I could imagine that uh, that's not very much fun, but, but my goal is really to protect the overall kidney health and keep everything flushed out and not develop any stones anywhere for as, as long as I can. I fully support you in that goal, Mike. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. Mike, what are you doing currently to make sure that that goal happens? Well, water is number one. So I got the big jug of water here next to me and and refill it often. Uh, Some foods to avoid, which wasn't very hard for me. They're mostly healthy foods that, you know, you don't crave and dive too deeply into anyway. I don't know anybody besides, you know, Popeye that are going spinach crazy. I I think those are pretty easy. Then the third thing for me is really everything else around good kidney and liver function that you would hear from probably any other patient or, or person you interviewed. Avoiding drugs, alcohol, anything that would cause too many toxins in the body eating as healthy as I can and avoiding too much processed food and and other things that dehydrate me. I wouldn't say a whole lot of rocket science there, but trying to eat a whole bunch of whole foods as clean as I I can, and then keep everything flushed out with a whole bunch of water just to, to keep the pipes moving as freely as I can. What about monitoring? What do you do on a regular basis, whether it's annually or biannually or monthly, to monitor your condition of hyperoxaluria? 
annual x-rays for kidney stones and an annual urinalysis to check the numbers on, on kidney function and, and everything else too. Is the urine test the 24-hour one? Is it everything? Is like creatinine, urea, a GFR, as well as oxalate? Yeah, they do the whole workup. Yeah, and a 24-hour urinalysis, yeah. Is the oxalate test directly measured? Yeah, that one's in there for sure. So I can see those numbers each time. That's with my nephrologist specialist now too. So I I go directly to him because basically any type of general doctor would not have a clue about that. So I go see them once a year and take those tests about a month ahead of time. I'm curious how strictly you have to monitor your diet. Do you have an Oxalate app on your phone? Do you keep track of your Oxalate quota? And it's like, well, I had some chocolate today, so that eats into my Oxalate quota. What do you what do you do for that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think specifically for people that have trouble with kidney stones, it's more of a buildup issue. So it, it's not an instant thing like my blood sugar drops and I pass out or, or something uh, like you would be with diabetes. So kidney stones develop from the oxalate and calcium levels being high for an extended period of time. So if I go on vacation or something, I'll eat whatever I want. Or if there happens to be spinach and kale and a smoothie or something I want, I'll, I'll still have it. I just try to avoid chronic issues. So it's mostly dehydration is the only one that I pay attention to all the time. Uh, which is generally just the color of my urine and making sure that I'm drinking water all the time uh, that I watch on a regular basis. But other than that, it's making sure that I don't get into bad habits. I wish there was a better way to monitor my water intake, though. I did count for a while when I was first diagnosed. I was uh, very you know, concerned about it. So I was measuring how much and making sure I refilled my jug at least three to four times a day. After that, I became that became very cumbersome. And with the apps, you have to actually enter the ounces every time. And so sometimes between meetings, I'll fill up half a jug that was half empty. And I was like, all right, I'm not doing math every single day <laughs> to keep track of this. So I, I wish there was a better way to monitor water intake, but there's really not. A little known fact, Nikolai Tesla was a brilliant guy. One of the things that Nikolai Tesla did was he calculated in his head the volume of everything he put in his mouth as food. Wow. That seems definitely like overkill. He did that for fun. He did not have hyperoxaluria. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to go to say, I'm also an alternating current fan. So I don't know, maybe that's just me, but I do love Tesla. He was very smart. He was very smart. However, most people won't be able to do that in their heads while they're eating and then multiply it by some factor for the water content of that volume in addition. Right. Yeah. So I just figure more is more is better, right? Uh, just I'll just make sure I drink as much water as I can. And it, it helps with hunger and other health issues too. So uh, you have to drink quite a lot of water to have it have ne- negative side effects. That's true. It sounds like a great strategy. And I love that the strategy is so simple because, boy, a lot of people with kidney disease, their strategies for success are much more complicated and much more difficult. Well, I'm definitely grateful for that, but I'm also surprised at how many people 
still drink coffee or or soda when they're they're having issues like that and you're like just stop <laughs> like this is not something you know nature designed us to drink stop it <laughs> but that's all right their choice i suppose yeah yeah well it's it's interesting because for some people it's harder or easier to kick habits yeah and it's it sounds like for you you've had a really easy time of doing that so maybe we need to study you for for that reason and learn your secrets of changing habits. You know, I think that part is interesting. I don't know if I'm more or less disciplined than most people, but I have been able to quit things. Quitting alcohol when I was 21 was pretty easy. I, I think because of my disease, it just wasn't in it for me. But quitting smoking was really hard. That took me multiple, multiple tries. But then everything else, caffeine and other lifestyle choices and like switching to the water we're all fairly easy, but I think you can get into that as a lifestyle and as a whole thing, right? Do you like changing things and optimizing your life and making positive changes or are you getting too stressed and freaking out and giving up and losing your willpower? So I manage my willpower a lot during uh, every day and week to know how much bandwidth I have left. I know if I have a busy week or a busy day on Thursday, it's like, I better start stocking up on sleep. I better make sure that I rest and maybe don't push myself on workouts and things to make sure that I have the brain power and physical energy for Thursday. And then afterwards I can rest or if there's extra bandwidth, then I can invest that into other things. But I really do pay attention and I don't necessarily measure. I, I journal and I meditate to, to pay attention to it. It's important because if I get tired and worn out, I will eat junk food. I'll make bad decisions. We all like feel sorry for ourselves, right? Then we make poor decisions. But if you can stay healthy, stay in a good momentum, give yourself permission to rest and recharge, it's a lot easier to stick with what you're trying to do and what the game plan is. So self-reflection has been a large part of your ability to understand those inner workings and set limits yeah. for yourself. Yeah, for sure. And I would also say just coming to to grips with things. And, and I think you have to work hard to see things objectively because it, it's so it's so strange with unseen diseases. I have primary hyperoxaluria. That's not something that you know, somebody walking across the street from you goes, oh, I I'm sorry. You know, that must be rough. Like, let's take it easy on you. They don't know what's going on in your world or, or your head. And I think that kind of makes you wake up to other people and, and be more sensitive to them. But it also, to me, puts perspective on it that if you don't self-reflect and realize that like, oh, other people have their own thing going on and my thing's not as bad as most people's thing. I really just have to drink more water. I can kind of get myself back into a, a positive and, and healthy mental state because I really do think they're, they're tied together. That my mental health for me is directly related to my physical health. When, when I am more stressed and more worried and more concerned about my mental health than my physical health goes down. I gain weight. I am lazy. I don't work out. And I, I make poor choices of what I'm eating and, and what I'm putting in my body. I saw a TED Talk by 
Jane McGonagall. Yeah, I know her. Uh, I know her work yeah. a lot. I've read uh, her book. Yeah. She had a TED Talk. I think she had a number of them. The w- One of them that I saw was about her game Super Better. It reminded individuals to have practices that improved their mental health. Yeah, I mean, gamification and everything is really cool. And that's what I geek out on. That's one of my personal passions is I'm trying to be more playful and have more fun in life and go with the flow a lot easier than trying to stress and push and grind and and figure out something that is beyond me. I think it's important to stretch outside your comfort zone sometimes, but it's also important to work within your natural skills and ability. So uh, Marcus Buckingham is another great author who's uh, the creator of the Strength Finder app and, and book. He talks about working inside your strengths, but I think both of those combined for me means how do I play? How do I set up the external circumstances that I make the right decisions for me. So if I'm not asking myself to work on my weaknesses and things that are terrible and that take a lot of effort for me, then I'm not going to be avoiding them. If I set up the gamification of my life so that I have positive momentum and energy and encouragement to move forward in the direction I want, that's going to make the choices a lot easier. Similar with my weekly schedule, that if I I burn myself out and I spend all my energy and I don't sleep, the next day it's going to be less likely that I do the things I need to do to, to stay on track. I have a two-year-old toddler. She corrects my ego on a daily basis, <laughs> my friend. One of the other things that I learned from having a small toddler is that everything is play mm-hmm. for a toddler. Eating was play. Yeah. That spoon has to go towards the mouth, right? Putting pants on is play. I have to chase her, wrestle her, and tickle (laughs) her for every article of clothing that is put on to her. Sometimes this could be a long process, but there's a beauty in that perspective that's so easy to lose as an adult, Mm -hmm. that everything is play and that everything should be play. Well, that's why I started my new pet project this year called Playful Humans. And it's a a podcast and a website community to remind adults about the power of play. But you're right on. I I think we were born to be playful humans and we're in our best state and living our best life when we're joyful and we're playing with all parts of that, playing with our, our food, with Uh, moving our body with what we wear and our fashion and with other people socially or working with our hands and solving puzzles. There's all different types of play, which is really interesting. And I I think it's a good message for anyone listening to this is sometimes when you have a health issue, you suck out the play side of things too, that we all get concerned about working or how we're going to pay our bills and other things. And and just as an adult, so much of the pressure of stress comes in and it doesn't help things, but play is magical for your health. I've seen research studies that you have lower weight, uh, better mental health. You're more creative. It creates more connections and actually a larger brain. You have better social relationships, which also adds to 
to mental health. And it's just across the board. This is, this is a crazy one uh, for anybody that, that is listening here. Playing 30 minutes a day makes you more physically attractive to the opposite sex. I mean, seriously, if I told you there was a magic pill that made you lose weight and look sexier and uh, have better mood and better health, and it had no side effects, would you take that pill? Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's just goofing around for 30 minutes a day. That, that's all you have to do is actually have some fun with your life. I think that's important not to lose sight of when you're facing any health issue. Right. Holy cow. I love that. So do you have a game for how much water you're going to drink or are you past that? <laughs> well, yeah, I think I'm past that, but I'm wondering if I should now. Maybe. Yeah. Like I said, if it was easier uh, to track, I, I would. And also like the other downside of drinking all the water is that you have to go to the bathroom more. So there's also some logistical challenges to that when you're, when you're working or like me, I go up on stage uh, sometimes when there's not a coronavirus uh, pandemic. Uh, and so you want to be able to go like, you know, an hour or two without having to go to the bathroom. There are, are challenges around it, even though it's a fairly easy, uh, easy prescription for me. Mike, you talked about this term, midlife renaissance. <laughs> I love it. I love it because I think everybody goes through this period where they look back at what they've done and it wasn't terrible. It was, it was good. It was okay. And then there's just part of him that is not happy with the forward trajectory and maybe want to make some changes or looking for a, a different beginning. And I think that this is related somehow to, to play and maybe to the, the sort of wake-up call that you've probably had in your diagnosis and I'm wondering if you could connect those all for me. I think all three of those are connected. And also, I think I stole that term from Dax Shepard on his Armchair Expert podcast. They are. I think at the same time, I was having success in my career. I became VP of this international company. And I kind of got to a level where I'm certainly not worried about paying the bills month to month, or I can afford to do what I need to, to do. That, that was part of it. That also those jobs kind of suck out the play. I was working so hard and I have been married for, for a while that it, it's like you stop flirting and you stop having fun and, and doing other single people things that are, are playful. Then the health diagnosis too kind of made me wake up. And, and I think all of them combined with turning 40 as well as kind of a milestone number. I probably pay attention to the numbers more than I do, but I, I think the big ones, especially like the decade mile markers, you go, where am I? If this is uh, midlife, how do I feel up to this point? And, and how many years do I have left and, and stuff start coming into your mind? And then they all swirled around for me uh, around enjoying the ride. 
I've always been kind of young for my age and young for what I was accomplishing. And, and I felt like, well, if I can just get here, if I can just get to this leadership position, or if I can just get to this age that people will listen to me or I'll have it figured out and then I can stop stressing about things. And I think part of a midlife renaissance is realizing, oh, nobody has it figured out. Oh, this was all sold to me that I should have been doing this, but it's kind of all, all BS a little bit. It's all made up. For me, the pandemic also drove it home that we expect there to be some expert or some scientist that could just solve the pandemic for us. But sometimes there's no answers. It's not that easy that there, there's no way to fix it. There's no way to stop it. That life just is. And, and disease hits you like that, right? <laughs> Especially a genetic one like myself. It's like, oh, well, I just have this. So there's no there's nobody I can call. There's nobody that that has the answer that can fix it. And sometimes that just happens. And there's no magic age to live the life of your dreams, to have fun and enjoy it. I think people, you know, set 65 as a retirement target, but that to me sounds like a terrible idea. If I'm this unhealthy and sore and, and have arthritis starting at 40, why would I wait until I'm 65 to have fun? I don't see me being any more capable to do the things I want to do and and travel and play and ride bikes or run marathons or whatever you want to do. Play with kids is another one, like get on the floor and, and roll around. Like by the time you're 65 and have time to do that, you can't do it anymore. So there's becomes this sort of inflection point, I think, for people around midlife where you come to those realizations that you go, oh, this is it. This is life. This is what it's all about. There's no tomorrow. There's no retirement. You're not promised any of that, right? You got to figure it out. And same thing for young people. If there are young people listening to this, this is it, man. Nobody knows. You know why adults always ask kids what they want to be when they grow up? Because they're still looking for the answer. They don't know, right? They want ideas. Yeah. They want, they want to create it. They want to know if you found any ideas that they haven't found yet. So, Now's the time. You're not going to get any smarter. You're not going to get any healthier. Money maybe changes a few opportunities, but I can tell you that that really doesn't make a difference. Research studies have shown that once you get to a certain amount of money, happiness doesn't change. That anybody making over $70,000 a year is pretty much in the same boat. And I think when you look at millionaires, they run out of ideas too. Their house isn't a whole lot cooler. They're still have like a TV room and a kitchen and a bathroom and a place to sleep. And they might have fancier things in there, but they're not life-changing things. It doesn't make your life so much better that you're more happy. I heard a great example. It was either Dave Ramsey or Seth Godin that talked about an, an, a car, a, an automobile, that when you buy a car, that's a life-changing moment for you. You now have freedom. You can go places. You can get to a job. It's extremely valuable to buy a automobile. Now, a better automobile doesn't bring a whole lot of added value. So, the difference between a $5,000 vehicle that runs and a $50,000 vehicle that runs are not a great pleasure. They're not $45,000 worth of difference in, in pleasure. Now, the Interesting thing also comes is most families have a second car or a third car 
you can't drive two cars at once. So now you're actually not adding very much pleasure to your life at all. And I think you can apply that same thing to all of the stuff, to, to food or your job or other things. It's like, wait, adding more doesn't help. Adding more expensive things don't help. So you got to get back to play. You got to get back to who you are, the relationships and things and activities that do matter to you is what's important to me. What is the question that you ask yourself to measure whether or not today was a good day? Number one is being playful, doing something that was fun. I often use the word awesome too, because that's awe-inspiring. Did I play with my nieces or or nephew or did I play a game or, or call a friend or do anything that was, I consider playful and enjoyable for me today? Did I spend at least 30 minutes for myself in something that I enjoy? Number two is meditation. Did I spend at least 30 minutes just checking in with myself and just shutting everything off, turning the phone off, the lights off, and just checking in with how I'm doing and allowing myself to rest and recover? Three is exercise, spending at least 30 minutes with my heart rate up, hopefully breaking a sweat, lifting weights or or running or, or exercising or playing a sport. Number four for me is using food as fuel and putting good things into my body. Did I eat today the way I planned? So that doesn't always mean 100% healthy food, but the way I intended to when I woke up is my measurement of, of success. Because if it's my birthday, I'm going to plan to eat some freaking pizza and have some ice cream and enjoy life. So if I ate according to that, that gets a check mark in my box. If I got up and planned to have a protein shake, eat a salad for lunch and chicken and broccoli for dinner, and I didn't do any of those things, then I can't give myself the check mark. So I look at all four of those things every day and keep track in a, a street journal. So there, there is a sense then in which you monitor your, your diet. And I, I assume that because you've had experience with yourself for a period of time now, that probably the diet requirements are at least mentally factored in from an intuitive basis. And you, you do have somewhat of a daily check-in. Yeah, I prefer it that way. And I think the word intuitive is accurate. I think we know as humans, whether we're eating according to what we had planned or whether we gave up and threw the diet out the window at lunch, right? We, we know when we make those decisions. So mine is to make the decision once. If I go for a five mile run, I can't halfway decide, oh, you know what? Today it's hard. hard. I'm just going to call it two miles and turn around. Well, no, I already decided I was going to run five miles today. And for me, the meal is the same way. If I decide that I'm going to eat healthy today, it better be something I had not considered that threw me off. So if a friend calls me to go out to dinner or something, or my wife makes a a special meal for dinner, then that's okay. I'm choosing now in a new moment to do something else. But I can't break that promise to myself that I said I was going to make a salad and now I'm tired, so I'm going to order a pizza. That doesn't count as an external circumstance that I didn't factor in. Does your system reduce the amount of willpower you need in order to continue making these healthy decisions on a daily basis? 
I would say at least 80%. Yes. That's why I do that. Because if you have to decide in every moment, whether you're going to stick to your diet, you're going to fail. Another great author, Dr. Benjamin Hardy said, 99% is harder than a hundred percent. So if you're 99% committed to your diet, you have to decide when that 1% is all the time. And so you keep reevaluating and you keep deciding over and over again, is this the time where I quit? And more times than 99, you're going to say yes. So you're going to fail more. But if you are 100% decided, I'm not going to drink a cup of coffee again for the rest of my life, it becomes a non-factor. It it doesn't take willpower because you already know you're not going to do it and you build momentum. And that's why I like that streak chart too, is if I've eaten healthy for 10 days in a row, for me to blow my my streak is more difficult than it is to stick on the diet. I love that rule. I love that 99% being harder than 100. That makes so much sense. Yeah. When I heard that, it clicked for me. And I think we all experience that in life, right? When you're committed, something happens. Like if you're sitting at your desk right now, you, you can't pick up your pen at a 99% commitment level. You either pick up the pen or you don't. Once you decide it's zero or one, it's a binary choice, then life becomes a lot easier and you stop fighting with yourself about it. What do you do for play? I love being on a microphone or on a stage. I am really present when I'm doing that. This half hour has been really fun for me. I also have a huge Star Wars Lego collection. That one is is a me time kind of thing where this is the extroverted part of, of play for me. Legos is the introverted brain activity play. Playing with my nieces and, and nephew. I have seven nieces and, and one nephew right now and soon to have a second nephew. I love when you get to play with kids and whether that's just make-believe, playing funny games or playing in the pool and running around or wiffle ball. Those are, are awesome magic moments. So I, I try almost to never say no if a kid asks me to play. My goal is to say yes every single time. That is awesome. Yeah, it's super fun. That, that really brings me a lot of joy. I think I've reached the end of all of my most interesting questions. That's good, because I think I've reached the end of my interesting stories. (laughs) Oh, gosh, you were on fire for this. I loved it. (laughs) Thanks. And last thing, can you put in a plug for Playful Humans? Where can people find more about your work? Sure. If you just go to playfulhumans.com, you can find a link to the podcast. It's also available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, everywhere you can get podcasts. The videos are on YouTube and they're really fun because sometimes we play visual games with our guests and tell jokes. And we have jugglers and puppeteers on that are a lot more interesting visually than they are on an audio podcast. (laughs) So you might want to check out the YouTube channel for sure, Playful Humans. I appreciate the plug. There's a community there. If you are a cool, fun adult that wants to be more playful, join us in the Playful Humans community. We're, We're collecting Cool, fun people, no jerks allowed. (laughs) Thanks, Mike. All right, thanks. That was Mike Montague, podcaster, speaker, writer, game show host, bearer of a rare genetic feature, hyperoxaluria, and an expert in life optimization. 
You can join Mike Montague weekly at Playful Humans, the podcast for playful people. I hope you have found this interview as inspiring as I did for gamifying one's life and adopting healthy habits. Thank you for joining us. I'm Nath Rembach. This was my third kidney.